morning. As you can see in the bulletin, today's reading is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. For those of you who do not have a Bible with you, you can, you're welcome to use the Blue Pew Bible, where you will find 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 on page 986. Hear God's word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers of Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And may the Lord speak to us today through His service, empowered by the precious Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the striking phrases in this passage is, turning to God from idols in verse 9. And it made me think of the uh, Saxon kings. Uh, the Saxons came and basically wiped out the Roman civilization that was in England uh, there in the 5th century. And for two centuries, there was really no history uh, to speak of because they didn't read or write. And then... Christianity was introduced uh, to these Saxon kings. And it's fascinating to, to read uh, the king of Northumbria, which is a northern area in England, when the gospel was presented to him and some of his uh, leaders, the Witan, the uh, 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 civic and political leaders with him, uh, the other nobles. One of them said to him, urging him to adopt this uh, this new religion, he said, King, we've, we've never known what came before us or what came after us. All is darkness to us. He said, this is good. This is encouraging. Let us embrace this. It was for the whole new perspective of having someone who had come from heaven before time and would take us into what's coming after time and who had already entered that, who had to bring light to this 
blackness that sat on each side of this world that we know of. Fascinating because these were pagan people, thoroughly pagan people, just like many of these <clears throat> thoroughly pagan, worshiping the gods of Aphrodite and, uh, and Dionysus and gods like this we'll talk a little bit about. And the transformation of changing a god <clears throat> is just radical. The, the transformation, for instance, later the, the Vikings, of course, came when the Saxons had been converted. Then the Vikings come along and would wipe out monasteries, burn everything, because their gods, the gods of war, uh, the, to worship them, you kill as many people as you can. That's how you worship. That's how you honor this God of war, is you kill as many innocent people as you can. Everybody you see, wipe them out. And the presentation of the blood of these people was your offering to this God and pleased him. Could there be anything more thoroughly satanic than a God to whom you, whom you please by murdering innocent people? Well, as we'll see a little bit of that with these gods who, in many cases, promoted immoral lifestyles, uh, at least, say, promoted, the, that is, the teaching uh, about them did this. So we are, we're coming here to this passage in which the Holy Spirit brings to bear on these pagan lives the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they turn from these idols that they had worshipped their whole lives and everybody they knew worshipped. And they put themselves in the hands of this Lord Jesus Christ. All because of the Holy Spirit. This spirit that was poured out in Pentecost as we've seen in Acts chapter 2. Now we've, we're, we're going with this passage to show what happened out there in the Mediterranean basin, what happened out there among the Greeks themselves when this same Holy Spirit poured out in Pentecost uh, began to govern and rule and bring about the conversion of the peoples of the Roman Empire. And really, I'm going to break it down in just two ways because God, uh, Paul basically talks about this in this way. He says, we know, we knew, and we know of God's choosing of you for two reasons. One, what the Holy Spirit did in us when we preached to you. And two, what the Holy Spirit did in you when that preaching went forth. Very simple. We, we know that God has chosen you because of what happened in us by the Holy Spirit and then what happened in you. By the Holy Spirit. But that helps give us a little analysis of what the Holy Spirit does. Working and governing in the lives of those who are bringing the gospel and then working and governing in the result of that preaching of that gospel to transform more lives. All because of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, to, to begin with then, I'm going to back up a little for the the story, because he does use this word in verse uh, four. We know, brothers, and it'd really be helpful to keep your Bibles open because we're really going to 
uh, look at some stuff closely here. But in page 986, again, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And first, you see the the connection between God's love and his choice. You'll see this in Deuteronomy when God is speaking to the Israelites and he says, hey, I didn't pick you because you're a great people. Great in number, prosper, you know, prosperous, uh, really the classiest group of people, and you're the ones I wanted. He said, I didn't pick you because of that. I chose you because I loved you. Yeah, but what? No, no, no. I chose you because I loved you. And so election always has this idea of God's love, his setting his love upon us and desiring us and coming after us to bring us to himself and live with us forever. So election is a tender word. We need to get out of our heads that it's a severe thing. In scripture, it's always dealt with as the most tender thing that God would set his love on anyone that has rebelled and hated him rebelled against him and hated him, and he would want them and draw them to himself. <clears throat> Paul, if you'll just turn the page to Second Thessalonians 2.13, you can see again how Paul refers to this. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. We see there's the idea, again, you're beloved by the Lord, God chose you. He chose you because he had set his love upon you. And so Paul regularly speaks this way as in Colossians 3.2, one page, 3.12, one page before. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So you see this constant association of love and choosing. And so this story as Ephesians 1 reminds us, begins, Ephesians 1, 4 gives us a, a timeline. It says, oh, thank you. Oh, poor man. <laughs> it gives us a timeline and we find, it says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Oh, wait, the timeline is before the timeline got started, Right? Before the foundation of the world, he chose us. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, he chose us according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So this is important as you think about the Thessalonians, that when God is creating the world among other people that he has in mind, when he's creating the world and saying, let there be light, He's already decided, I'm going to go after those Thessalonians. I'm going to get those Thessalonians. And I'm going to draw them to myself. The Thessalonian story started before the world began. When God chose them. And then, we, of course, God chooses to do this through his own son. And so we can say that he's chosen to rescue these people at the greatest possible cost to himself. And never because they're the best people. Not because they stand out. Not because they're worthy. Only because of his love. And so this choosing, electing love 
then becomes a seeking love in the New Testament. It's a seeking love, going after those that he's chosen. Now I would like for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and this is found on page 910. This is a passage we've uh, dealt with pretty recently, but I want to remind you of it. Here's the, there are two parts of God's seeking His chosen. One, seeking them through the actual work of Christ on the cross and then seeking to connect His people with that work. So here's verse 23. This Jesus, Peter says, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay? It was God's plan and foreknowledge to have him crucified. Also, if you'll just turn the page to chapter 4, verse 28, you'll see again, he speaks about Herod and Pontius Pilate, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there are two passages in the early two sermons where he refers to the fact that God has this plan. Well, he chooses a people, and then according to that plan of rescuing them, he sends his son. And he has the Thessalonians on his mind, no doubt, as he dies. Now I'd like for you to turn to Acts 13. Just a few more passages in Acts because we're building up to when Paul got to Thessalonica. 13 verse 1, this is page 921. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay. Just bear in mind, God chooses a people. He sends his son to die. And now the Holy Spirit is carving out Paul and Barnabas sending them to the Gentiles to tell them about this Jesus who has died. So this is God's electing love, and now this electing love is a searching, seeking love. Holy Spirit carving out these men, sending them forth. And now turn over to chapter 16, verse uh, 6. This is Paul first... Just a little geography, his first missionary journey was in what we know as southern Turkey, okay? (laughs) Southern Turkey. And the second missionary journey, he reviews these churches, visits these churches in southern Turkey, and he's planning to go straight east to what's called Asia, East Turkey. But notice verse 6 of chapter 16, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia because they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Mm. Holy Spirit cars them out, sends them out. Now the Holy Spirit is saying, "Uh uh-uh, not Asia. So they came up to Mysia, 
because they had tried to go to North Turkey, which is Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So the Holy Spirit says no to the east, no to the north. Paul goes up to northeast Turkey, to the coast, to his hometown of Troas. Interesting that he goes to his hometown. Can't go here, can't go there. I'll go to Troas. And there a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. And guess where Thessalonica is? Macedonia. Is this not amazing? This choosing of which Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 1 goes back before time And through that choosing, Jesus comes and dies. And then the Holy Spirit selects Paul and Barnabas. And on this second journey, he guides Paul right to Thessalonica. Right to Thessalonica to speak to these people. And so uh, this, as as Paul then goes on to say here in 1 Thessalonians... uh, He says, we know how he's chosen you. And he could have said, we know that he's chosen you because we're even here, right? We know he's chosen you because we couldn't go to Ephesus area. We couldn't go up north to Turkey. We came straight over here because he told us to. And so not only these things, but now he says... Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And power likely points to the particular unique signs of an apostle that that Paul showed. Now, we can't repeat those unique apostolic signs, but we can copy and manifest the character that Paul showed forth. And notice he says, what kind of men we prove to be among you. What kind of men we prove to be among you. And you'll notice in chapter 2 that Paul describes what they were like. And he says, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. We had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi. That's where they were thrown in jail, the Philippian jailer episode, right, in in Philippi. And so we we had the boldness in our God to declare you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And he goes on to say, you know we weren't out for gain because we didn't try to get any money from you. And you know that we weren't speaking to preserve our own lives because we knew we were risking our lives. We'd come and been thrown in jail and been persecuted and we came to you to proclaim the gospel to you. You know our motive. We weren't there to please man. We were there to please God who tests our heart. We didn't flatter you. It wasn't a pretext for greed. And then he goes on to describe how we tenderly cared for you like a nursing mother, her child, taking her care of her own children. This is a nursemaid, and now she's caring for her own children. This woman given to the care of children, caring for her own. He says, that's what we were like. We were like a father encouraging his children among you. You know what we were like among you. We were dedicated for your good. We were were willing to lose everything for your sake. And so in all of this, you see, there was amazing work of God by the Holy Spirit to get Paul there to speak the gospel and to make Paul and his men certain kinds of people 
that exhibited that gospel. And their love and compassion, their utter sincerity, and their willingness to suffer in order that this truth be made known. Willing to suffer that others might gain the gospel and might have the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what their lives looked like because of the Holy Spirit. Marked by this conviction of the truth and this loss of self that spent themselves for others. And how will this look among us as we are facing out toward the world? How will it look when the Holy Spirit lays hold of us and we become people of conviction and character, which I believe we are becoming by God's grace? We don't know how many others around us are as well God's chosen ones whom he seek, will seek and gather to himself. And you see, Paul says later in Timothy that he endures all things, he says, for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain this salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's what you and I are called to do. To labor for the sake of who knows who they are around us, your neighbors, your fellow workers, uh, that they could be the, your fellow student, fellow players on your team, that mom of your child's good friend in school, family members, uh, some of the people you work with in the PTA or in some community or political organization. We have the privilege of showing forth the fruit of the Spirit in our lives so that we, through our kindness and hospitality and servanthood, being wise and, 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 how we, and when we speak the gospel, but not ashamed to speak that gospel, become those kinds of people convicted by its truth and dedicated to lose ourselves that others might know this truth. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's not something to distance ourselves and say, well, that was Paul and the apostles. But it's something very different from us. No, it is the very call and the very destiny of God's people. It, we can know that this is what he wants to do among us, is to make us in some way like Paul and these men in our compassion and love toward others. And our willingness to lose everything that they might know the gospel. I have to also say here that this has tremendous application to us as pastors and elders and deacons in this church. As we seek the good of this flock. And brothers, I would encourage you, we could do worse than study these first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 2. Meditate on them, pray over them, and ask for God to make this the mark of our character, is to be like these men were among these Thessalonians, that we might be those kinds of men among these people that God has given to us. And knowing, depending completely upon the only one that can do it, and that's the powerful Holy Spirit. And We should be encouraged because as Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders, he said, the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. 
The Holy Spirit has put you into this office. And the Holy Spirit will increasingly give us this very character, which was nothing less than the character of Jesus manifested in these men's lives. And we all need to pray for our leaders that they might conform to this character that you see in 1 Thessalonians 2. This kind of uh, other-centeredness, this kind of compassion, this kind of zeal, this kind of love for the truth that will not compromise no matter what the cost. And it's interesting that Paul's commitment to truth and to the good of people is one. His zeal and love for them was, was coupled with the zeal and love for the truth. And it had to be that because it was only the truth that would set them free. It's only the truth, uncompromised truth, that would do them good. And so to love them, he must love the truth. He must love the truth and he must love these people. And there's the mark of, of true leadership in the church. And so Paul can say in the first place, we knew, we know that God has chosen you Simply because of what we were among you. As we saw what the Spirit meant to do in your lives by the way he had taken hold of us. And then in the second place, it's almost as though Paul says, the Spirit had us and then he got you too. Right? The Spirit had us. And he brought us there. He, he marshaled our getting to you and then governed, it, governed our very lives in the midst so that we could live out this gospel before you and show this kind of zeal and love. And then he did it all to get you as well. He laid hold of us in order to lay hold of you. And dear friends, that's what he will do with us. He'll lay hold of us as a congregation in order to lay hold of others and yet others and yet others. And that's why the the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost is for the purpose of making known the gospel, living it out in love and zeal and making known the truth of that gospel. And so uh, Paul can say he took hold of us, caused us to be fools for Christ. He governed us by his love. We caught the fever of his love and we sacrificed ourselves and we were beside ourselves and outside of ourselves for you. We lost ourselves for you. We were brimming with zeal and compassion and mercy and sacrifice. That's what we became because of God's spirit. And then in you. You were turned around as well. And, and probably the heart of what, was, what happened to them is spoken in verse 6 when he says, You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And I'm reminded here, it's, it's so amazing that in the midst of so much affliction... Knowing they were going to face this affliction, they, they, were, they were listening to men who said, we just came from Philippi and got persecuted and thrown in jail. Let us tell you why. Let us tell you the message that got us thrown in jail. I mean, right from the outset, this is not hopeful in terms of what may happen to you next. We just came from persecution. Now, would you like to join us in that? <laughs> They're like, yeah, go on, next city, you know, move on to Berea and Athens, etc. We'd rather not believe this message. I mean, it's just like Jesus saying right from the outset, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. 
got to be willing to be hated by the world. But what's remarkable is by the power of the Holy Spirit, they did this in joy. Joy in the midst of affliction. And they weren't looking back and saying, gosh, wasn't it better when we didn't have this affliction, when our neighbors who are worshiping idols and now we're not going along with them and worshiping the idols and now they've turned against us? Wasn't it better before? And they said, no, it wasn't better before. This is good. This is rich. This is wonderful. We know the living God. And so they received the word with joy in the midst of affliction. It reminded me, as I read and meditated on this, it reminded me of Jesus' words in Matthew 13, where he says, here's what the kingdom of God is like. A guy's going, walking through a field, he finds a treasure, and then he goes and he sells everything he has in order to buy that treasure. But here's the kicker in that verse. He says, for The joy he had in the treasure, he sold everything he had. He wasn't, you know, getting the treasure and saying, God, I hate to give this up and this up. And out of joy, he was losing everything to have that treasure. That's what we see being lived out by the Thessalonians, right? For the joy of Christ, for the joy of knowing the true God, They're willing to suffer the persecution. And the persecution didn't destroy their joy. (laughs) They were were joyful in the midst of this loss. And so you could say that they entered into the fellowship of suffering of Christians. Because Paul said, you became imitators of us, we who had suffered, and of the Lord himself, the one who suffered at the hands of men. And you just walked into the party of suffering. You walked in and embraced this Lord that suffered for you. And you embraced us who were sufferers. And he says later in chapter 2, verse 14, You brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You suffered the same things as they did. You entered into the fellowship of suffering of God's people, joyfully worshiping this God and counting him worth everything in order to follow him. And so they became examples uh, in North Greece, which was Macedonia. They became examples in Achaia, South Greece. And he says, in fact, you became, well, everywhere, examples of a joyful commitment to Christ, full of hope, rich with the fruit of love and goodness, all in the midst of loss, all in the midst of affliction. You became examples in this way. And I was thinking of a few things to mention in terms of how can there be such joy in suffering? What kind of perspectives could one suddenly have that would give you joy in the midst of such suffering? You have to bear in mind, they came to know the true God, discovering that he's not a tyrannical God or a vindictive God or a morbid God or a capricious God or a selfish or whiny God like the gods of the Greeks. Not a needy God, but he is the all-powerful God, full and rich in his resources, so full and rich he gives himself away in kind sacrifice for those who've wronged him. Who ever heard of a God like this? What? 
the God who really owns and made all things, that has all power in the universe, used that power to sacrifice himself for people who had wronged him? That's who God is? Imagine how that transforms your understanding of all of life. It is this God that made the world. It is this God who governs the world according to his purpose, bringing all creation to a final renewal. That was news to everybody. Instead of their cyclical world, that's just going to go round and round and round and round and round and round again and again and again in this mad confusion. If I had time, I'd go into... Aphrodite and Dionysus, the goddess of love, goddess over prostitution, Dionysus, the god of, of uh, wine. Not to use these things, of course, in keeping with God's glory and command. But just think of the difference in trying to please Aphrodite by being sexually immoral versus to please the god of Yahweh by committing yourself to one woman And fulfilling your whole life, joining yourself to her and raising children together and imaging the the love of God for his people through that one relationship. Think of the awesome difference of those two worlds. And instead of pleasing Bacchus or Dionysus by uh, orgies of drunkenness to please the God who made all things by rejoicing in a proper and moderate use of his gift of wine. Think of the worlds of difference those two, those two worlds are. It's a new vision of God that they had, a new vision of God, a new acceptance with God. They believed for the first time in forgiveness and acceptance and freedom from judgment through the death and resurrection of Christ What would that mean to them now to have a freedom in the thought of judgment? A new attention from God to believe in God's commitment to their good in all circumstances. And now God's attention meant something because he's all powerful. He's kindness and power. This was a whole new world to them. That this powerful God is committed to their good. And they have a new identity with this God. Interesting that he says the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In your new identity, join to him in relationship to him. This is who you are now. And you're being made into his image You are co-heirs with Christ. You're participating in the future reign of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Your suffering now is a part of the suffering of Christ because you're identified with him. And so your suffering actually becomes your glory and your dignity. It's your very royalty and significance that cannot be taken away from you. Changed everything, you see. To turn from idols... To the living God, it changed everything. To be a part of this new community, this a new society, unknown in that day, this kind of religious society of brotherhood and servanthood, a new family calling God their father. There's a whole new uh, item on the scene and a whole new future with God. Whole new idea. You mean the body will be raised from the dead? You mean this earth will be renewed? 
the whole perspective. This, these are the kinds of things that gave them joy in the midst of their loss. In the midst of losing so much that was earthly in terms of people's uh, love and support, their former friends, you might say, who rejected them, they found everything in their relationship to God and their new relationship with God's people. And so their faith produced work, as he says in verse 3. We remember your work of faith, faith that produces work and love that labors and hope that brings steadfastness. This uh, faith brings about profound difference in my life and it changes how I live for others. It this, this work means to seek to do good to others, to do good to them in our thoughts and prayers and our words about them and to them and whatever we can actually do for them. That's what doing good or, or working by faith. And so faith, as we put ourselves in the trust of this God and begin to know his acceptance, then it profoundly affects how we live toward one another. We putting our faith in the God who did the greatest good by giving his son and we become like him to do good to one another. And so as well, love labors, seeking the best for others, seeking the others benefit, a self-sacrificing labor like God's self-sacrificing labor for us in Christ. And all of this labor, this outgoing love and kindness and sacrifice was sustained by this hope, as he says here. It was made steadfast because, as he says in verse 10, they were waiting for his son from heaven, waiting for his son from heaven, whom they knew was going to deliver them from the wrath to come. This one who was raised from the dead would deliver them from wrath. He will come and transform them and make them into his image. And so... This was their life now, full of faith and love and hope, all because of what the Holy Spirit had brought about in their lives. And brothers and sisters, we have the great privilege to be a community in which people to which people come and they begin to see their faith and they see their love and they see their hope. And it begins to be a vivid Example, a vivid proclamation from our very lives of what the gospel is, what the gospel will do for people, how it turns people's lives around to become a community that manifests this Holy Spirit, His great power in our midst, and the great transforming that He brings to His people's lives. That's what we're to be, that's what we can be by God's grace. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us, encourage us, Lord, draw us after Christ. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, make us into the kind of church that, as well as the Thessalonians, shows that we have abandoned our idols and we have begun to trust in the living God, that we have trust in this God who commits himself to his people's good, that Lord, we have this new perspective of this glorious God that pervades our lives and recreates us into his image and makes us into the kinds of people that have 
this uh, powerful light breaking out from our community into this dark world. Oh, Lord, make us according to your image. We pray and expect it by your Holy Spirit. Amen.